Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental health, mental illness. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And recently, Ian and I discussed how our brains assess risk. Well, this week we're going to focus on risk and children. As you grow up, you slowly develop the ability to assess risks and hopefully make good decisions about them. And you do that whenever you cross the street, drive a car, go to the pub, or think about tweeting something controversial. What's the risk? Is it worth taking? What can I do to mitigate the risk to make it safer? So how do kids learn to assess risk and make those decisions? How do parents help them to learn about assessing risk when usually parents' instinct is to protect the little darlings from any unpleasantness whatsoever? Is that a good instinct or can it actually inhibit a a, a kid in um, developing a good ability to assess risk. So our guest today, Daisy Turnbull, she is the Director of Wellbeing at St Catherine's School in Sydney. She's a secondary school teacher of history, business studies and religion, and she is the author of 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids. Hello, Ian. Hello, Daisy. Hello. Thank you for having me. A great pleasure. Um, Why is taking risks with your kids important, Daisy? Well, I think it's important because, like you said, when you're growing up, that's when you start to understand your own risk profile. And if you don't have the opportunity to make some stupid mistakes as a kid, you don't know what you feel comfortable with and what you don't. The other thing is if parents are constantly doing that risk analysis for kids and not giving kids the opportunity to make that you know, decision of whether or not they want to go bike riding down a steep hill or not, then when they're older and their parents aren't around them, they do that activity and realise they were not capable of doing it or they have too laissez-faire a relationship with risk or they're too terrified of anything. So it's but about it, it, finding the balance. It's such a it's such a strong incident, isn't it, in parents to protect your kid. It, it's very hard to let them, you know, go down a hill knowing that they might fall at the end. Where's it the is, sweet It's definitely spot like the, the main KPI as a parent to keep your kid yeah. alive. So I... <laughs> I can understand why why we've gotten to this very overprotective point, but we are seeing, and Ian can probably talk about this far better than I can, the repercussions of it, which is that we are seeing increased rates of anxiety and depression in kids, and especially in relation to anxiety, because anxiety develops when you are scared of doing things and you're not exposed to them. Right. Ian, can you expand on that? Because you know, not everyone would think if I don't let my kid ride down that 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 hill on their bike and learn how to assess risk, that could increase their chances of becoming depressed or anxious. What's the link there? A very important one, James, is we've discussed on other occasions about anxiety. The trouble is, unless you actually expose yourself to anxiety and then master it, you get more anxious. And in fact, if you've outsourced that to your anxious parents, and as we've discussed elsewhere, guess what? Anxious parents have anxious children. They're both terrified of risk. So this sort of a difficult, difficult, potential, vicious cycle between an anxious parent with precious children who then is more anxious and actually is reluctant to expose themselves or their child to risk for the very good reasons you said, you can end up with very anxious children. And there is this concern now in the modern age, parents have so many ways to monitor their precious mm. children. I do find myself as a grandparent wandering around playgrounds thinking, I've never seen such anxious parents in all my life. 
maybe because my parents weren't there in the playground. We just had other kids chasing each other around to the top of a tree and back, you know, really sitting there just waiting in that helicopter parent-like way. So it's kind of interesting that the assessment of risk in our wider society is we're almost completely risk-averse, as we've discussed elsewhere, James, in relation to many of the current challenges, but it's playing out quite strongly between parents and kids at the moment. And so anxious parents not allowing their kids the exposure and then the mastery that arises leads to more anxious kids. And the more anxious the kid, the more anxious the parent. Guess what? The danger is rates of childhood anxiety go up, as Daisy was just discussing. So when we think about risk, you know, we naturally think about the physical risks, climbing trees, riding your bike down a hill. When I was a kid, I was very anxious, very socially anxious. I'd hate going where there might be people I didn't know. I used to hate going to parties, walking in, even though I would know everyone there. Daisy, what's the scope of of risk. As, so, as you think um, about. in relation to the book, Fifty Risks Take with Your Kids, mm. I do go into social risks, and I think social risks are probably the most important set of risks. And um, the book was written for parents of kids up to the age of ten, for example. So, I did not, and this leaps a few years, hopefully many years, hopefully never. But this, I did not write about consent in the book, for example. Obviously, the book comes out in February and then the consent crisis is realised through the um, petition of Chanel Contos and all of that, and that's obviously senior school things. One of so, the risks sorry, just the book, for those not familiar, oh, can you explain that? Yeah, so in February, I think this year, Chanel Contos, a, um, a girl who oh, graduated yes. from an eastern suburb school in Sydney, started a petition of in, in response to the Brittany Higgins um case uh, of young women putting on a Google form times they had been sexually assaulted by someone at a party in their teens or by their boyfriend. Or, and it was it was very um, shocking to read for everyone. And it was about, you know, are we teaching kids enough about consent? Now, I did not talk about consent in the kids' book, but one thing I do talk about is that kids need to learn how to talk to adults. So whether or not that's your kid going in and paying for coffee if you're at a cafe or ordering something or going to get the milk when they're eight or nine, what that skill develops is their ability to assess how they feel around other people and that that element of trusting their gut. If you never let your kid do any of those normal things. You know, um, I was listening to you guys the other day and you were talking about how important it is for kids and teenagers to have a village of adults around them. If they don't have other adults around them that they can feel safe around and know people they like and also figure out people they don't like, then they do get to a teenage age and they've never tested that skill. Mm. And, you know, um, we have a guy called Brent Sanders talk to our students every year and he says, you know, in all of these situations that he's heard about, it's like, he was a really nice guy, he was a good mate, and then something happened. And it's about understanding our own sense of safety. And I think so the social risk is on one end, yeah, it is. It's learning to order a baby chino. It's, you know, having an argument with a friend. It's learning to be socially awkward at parties, James. But there is a long-term impact of not doing that. Yeah, Ian? Yeah, so the one you've raised, James, because the two sorts of anxiety for children, and this is what Daisy Books is around. One's around physicality, around your own body, you know, fall off things, it hurts. Probably a bad idea to do that again. There's actually learning the physicality of all the consequences. But the other one is separation anxiety. And when children are very young, they actually need parents. Take care of them, feed them, protect them from the world. 
And therefore, naturally, the natural response is when you separate a small child from its parent, it gets anxious. I'm glad you confessed to being an anxious child, James. Many children are. And it's quite a safe way. And you've got nice, warm, caring, cuddly parents, you probably want to be close to them. And it is hard then to make that separation. But the skill that Daisy's discussing, which is the social skill, which is essential, because let's face it, we all want them to grow up and go elsewhere in the long term and not stay that way for life, is actually exposure to that in the safe kind of way that Daisy's talking about. It's even interesting that Daisy now describes as taking risks. I can remember being sent to the shop on many occasions at the end of the road with a few five bucks and go get a game, you know, like whatever else, you know, a different kind of world. Whereas now, you know, we are less trusting of kids where sort of the sense of stranger danger or the fear in the external world and lack of safety in your own suburb or your backyard, you know, is amplified by the many stories that we're exposed to. When actually you look at the rates of many of those crimes, they've gone down, but people's anxiety about it's gone up, actually, in many ways. And so children don't develop that critical way of overcoming that natural anxiety. And some kids are more anxious, temperamentally more anxious. Blame their parents, they probably inherited it from them, or their grandparents probably inherited it from them. And actually, but they require then the behavioural intervention of the opportunity to overcome that anxiety and find out how to do the simple things that Daisy's discussing. Mm. So it's really interesting that Daisy's book is actually pitched at us, yeah, parents and the grandparents, to allow kids within a safe, broader environment to learn these particular skills that's required and then experience the mastery associated with that. Okay, that was a bit challenging. That was a bit frightening. But, you know, there was an upside. There are other skills that I actually developed that if I'm sitting on my own and my mum's doing it for me all the time or my granddad's doing it for me all the time, I won't ever develop. And I'll be more scared of it. Yeah. I was just remembering actually that feeling of going somewhere with my parents, you know, for lunch or dinner or something, and they've got kids about your age and and walking in, having to know that I'd have to hang out with these kids I'd never meet, just the terror, the absolute terror of it. What I've This is a, a hot topic of um, playground debate back, back when we could go to playground with our primary school age kids. At what age, I want a definitive number, Daisy, should you let your kids walk to the shops by themselves? Two, four, six, okay. eight, which one? I tried to find this out and it's actually near impossible. The New South Wales, I think it's transport yeah. website, there's a website that says you should hold your child's hand walking on the street or on the pavement until they are 12. My son Jack is eight and he is almost my height. He does not want to hold my hand and I do not really want to hold his. Um, There is no set age and that's because I think the government wants or, you know, governments want parents to figure it out with their kids. So it's obviously an individual thing. But the problem there, James, becomes that it becomes about judgment. So it's not that you're breaking the law, it's that other parents are going to judge you for it. So I have sent my son mm. off to get things at the shops and I have had neighbours say, did we see Jack walking around on his phone? And I was like, yeah, you did because he can do it. Um, and and so part of one of the risks in the – one of the sections of risks in the book is actually it's parenting risks and deciding that you're going to be that first parent to be risky because if you don't do it, then who who will? Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard though, isn't it, if, you, if your kid is scared of dogs and you're in the park and there's a dog – there's something called flooding. There's exposure therapy. Hang out with the dog. The dog won't bite you. You get more comfortable. But Ian, there's also, is it called flooding, where the kid is just so overwhelmed? So there's flooding as a therapy. 
Not such a great idea. But it is being overwhelmed. So that's a very important point you raised, James. And and the dog one, I think, is a really good example. I mean, good reason if you're a small person to be afraid of this big bike thing with big jaws and teeth right in your face. They regard it now as just a dog. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually going to bite me. You know. So actually, what you described, the graded exposure type idea, you know, pat the nice doggy, someone hold the doggy, preferably have that dog on a chain or something so that it actually is moderated in a particular way, is the appropriate way to do that. So the kid's level of anxiety does not become overwhelmed. They're not overwhelmed by it in a particular way and can learn to control that situation. So just chucking your kids randomly into really threatening situations, not a great idea. In fact, Daisy, you'll walk down the street question, James. I can say, well, that depends. For example, parents standing outside a shop with a kid and say to the kid, you go into the shop and purchase a thing, but I'm outside in a particular way. Mm. Go down the shop. Now, you're lucky. And the other problem we have, of course, is our kids these days don't tend to have a lot of siblings. Or a lot of kids next door. Go down the street with three of your friends. Go down the street with whatever. Go down to I can say myself and my younger sister. I think at about age six, we were stuck on buses and sent everywhere, you know. But we kind of went together and we did various things, which was a lot easier, safety in numbers, than necessarily doing our own. But we had the experience of doing the things in safe ways mm. and not being overwhelmed by anxiety, not being overwhelmed by that fear. So there is a trade-off here between the way you structure the activity <laughs> to allow the mastery to occur without being overwhelmed. Because then once you're overwhelmed, kids go, no way, never going back. And I think um, to your dog example, Ian, I have the uh, the counter side to that story where my neighbour just got a puppy just before lockdown and she's like, I do not want a dog that refuses to be near kids. So we've kind of coincidentally bumped into each other in parks so she, the dog can get used to my kids yeah. <laughs> to avoid dog-child That's anxiety. <laughs> And of course, in in lockdown, you know the the hey, I, I did what you said, Dad. I, I went to the um, I went to the shop with three of my friends, and I got the milk. That's the good news. The bad news is I got a five thousand dollar fine, but I have built up my tolerance of risk. So, you know, you, and you an absolute yank, fear of authority. Yeah. So, so Daisy, let's go more deeply into this this. Uh, this balance between overprotectiveness and not allowing your kid to get seriously end up in hospital, the balance between helicopter parenting and going free range, is the metaphor kind of like climb the tree, but I'll be standing at the bottom ready to catch you if you fall out, but I'm not going to stop you climbing it. Is that? Can you give us some practical examples of where the where you think the sweet spot is? Yeah. So look. This book is definitely written for people who are likely to be overparenters. It is not written for parents who are forgetting to feed their children. Right. So it, it's, you know, and frankly, if you're buying a parenting book, you probably are more likely to be overparenting than underparenting your kids. Um, I do think there are, okay, so some examples. So you mentioned the playground. I'm an um, avid crocheter. So when I go to the playground with my kids, I sit on a bench, I crochet, I kind of keep an eye on them. But I do see parents hovering around slippery dips and stuff. And I, playgrounds are so safe today. You don't need to do it. There's even that rubberized stuff they have outside of pubs. Like, they're fine. Um School relationships are a really interesting one. So when I think about when I was a kid and certainly when you guys were a kid, the relationship parents had with schools was very different to what it is now. And there is now parents stepping in, getting involved a lot more. That's because they love their kids, but also the mode of communication is so much easier and accessible. Send an email, you know, shoot off an email. Often parents do step in when actually the kid can deal with the problem themselves. So when I receive an email from a parent saying, you know, Josie forgot to do her history homework. I say, that's great. Get Josie to tell me. Like, what does Josie learn by having her mum send an email? Like, far better for parents to, kids to do that themselves. 
Ian? Yeah, Daisy's raising a really interesting thing. Thank God for teachers and a bit of common sense here. You know, my precious child is the only one in the school. Actually, this is going to school to get socialised, actually to get away from you and be exposed to other normal things. You see these marvellous curves of the onset of uh, mental health problems in children and teenagers. And guess what? Up to age of five, it goes up, 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 up. And then suddenly from age five, it starts to go down. People go, what's that you? I go, teachers. They got outside the family to meet other normal adults and socialise with other kids. And in fact... Levels of onset of anxiety will start to go down at that point. So we're very fortunate uh, in this current uh, age, and I think many parents at home, home parenting are even more appreciative these days, that teachers and that social group is for the socialisation. And a lot of these overcoming the intrinsic natural separation anxiety from the family you've only known for the last three to five years, leading to another one of my favourites, send them to early childhood care early you know if the first time your kid leaves home is at age five to go to school then all those pictures we see on the first day of school kids in terrible tears whatever and i I see pictures now of parents often mums well there's some dads going into school going into kindergarten with the kid no (laughs) it's not for you you've done kindergarten before you're past let the kid go but you know that's actually interesting waiting too long if that's the first time the kid has actually gone anywhere too long yeah, when you say let the kid go, some kids don't want to be let go. You know, they're dragging you in sometimes. So the, if you're doing it for the first time at age five or six with a primary school kid and the kid's like that, you've missed the boat. That's what should have happened at early childhood care at two or three or earlier on. Oh, no, I, don't, I, I don't agree with you there. I mean, I, <laughs> I know people have had that experience with kids who have yeah. gone yeah. to childcare a couple of days a week, two or three days a week, and got socialised yep. there. And then when primary school comes, it's 50 times as big and there's 50 times as many kids. And it's kind of back to I need to feel safe again. Mm. For the kids who are up the high end of the – anxiety, temperamental issue, that separation anxiety will play out again in you. In fact, then when you go from primary school to secondary school, you'll see the same thing. So for the kids who have very high levels of temperamental anxiety, each of these transitions will be more challenging. But if you want to mitigate against that, (laughs) you know, you take earlier action. In fact, recognising the temperament of your child much earlier. Now, for those of us who've got many... And I don't want to discuss here again because I generally, Daisy, in the middle of these episodes, get into honourable child numbers one through six. But let's just say the temperaments are different. And like many parents, you'll be well aware they were different pretty much from birth. And that those who are more anxious and more anxiously attached, the sooner you start to engage in this stuff, it won't change their underlying temperament, but their capacity to deal with it will improve. So yeah, I, I there mean, is I- a bit of an issue over time of being the parents and the surrounding world, grandparents. I mean – Excellent example, and Daisy's got a few. If your kids are anxious, leave them with their grandparents. You know, other people you trust, others, other, if you're lucky and have aunts and uncles and others that you trust, this kind of the idea, in fact, the more, the difficulty at the moment is the more anxious the kid, the more parents who are really on their own a lot more than they ever were are responding to that kid rather than sharing that with grandparents, aunts, uncles, early childhood care, primary school teachers, all those really nice people who can provide a secure but different environment and allow the kid to explore. It feels like what you're both saying is that as well as remembering for the full childhood of a kid, you've got to feed them, you've got to clothe them, you've got to make sure they're up to date with their schoolwork, you've also got to remember that one of your jobs is to help them develop this risk-taking ability. And I guess that's specifically one of the purposes of your book, Daisy. 
Yeah, and look, I would say the way I kind of came up with this idea is I said everyone agrees, James, you said when should kids be able to go to the shops. Everyone agrees that when you're in year seven, you should be able to get dressed for school, make your lunch, get yourself to school, assuming it's accessible. Okay, we all agree. 12, you should be able to do that. But what are we doing at 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5? So I taught my son, Jack, before he started at kindy, my mobile number. And we went through it many, many, many times. He finally got it. And I was like, this is for emergencies. Cool? He's like, cool, got it. First day of school, I get a text from a random number. Oh, hi, this is Christy. Uh, your son gave me his nu- your number. He wants to organize a play date. And I'm like, oh, that wasn't really the emergency I was thinking of, but okay, great. <laughs> Um, so I do. I think the thing we have to think about here, and this is what um, Ian makes about childcare and, and preschool, is everything we're doing is effectively to make parenting easier. And if parenting is not easier at four years old than it was at six months old, then you are doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting point, Daisy, because, I mean, just to go back to my point, different kids are challenging in different ways. So some kids will adapt uh, rapidly. Also, James, the, these early years of life, when the brain's developing very quickly, when these sort of issues about regulation, control of emotion, understanding the world, starting to perceive what's happening, starting to use language in particular ways, these are very precious years for learning these things. Mm. So the kind of idea, oh, don't worry, he'll just grow out of it. It'll all be fine. <laughs> you know, he'll come good at 10. Actually, you may have missed the boat on several key opportunities that this learning and development particularly around some of the ones you raised, James, particularly around social skills and understanding others in particular ways, understanding who is threatening and who's not, really appreciating situations that are physically threatening or not, depends on actually having experiences in those areas, safe experiences, but actually having experiences in particular ways. And we do. As Daisy said, we put a lot of emphasis. We make playgrounds safe. The dams are safer. We don't generally have kids shooting each other with air rifles anymore or bows and arrows and stuff. You know, we don't really have the degree of danger in the street that we have frequently seen, you know, Um, even being dog attacked in the street and whatever. These things are far less common. We We actually go to a lot of trouble to control actually real risk in the external world. But the social anxiety thing that you emphasise, James, is there and it's as pertinent as ever in some ways because kids often exist in smaller social networks now than mm. ever. That's actually increased. And school is one excellent opportunity, as much mm. school as possible, <laughs> you know, as many good school teachers as possible. But also grandparents, aunts, uncles, family, friends, other siblings in particular kinds of ways where you can or, or people you can pretend to have, you know, pseudo-siblings, you can share others <laughs> with others you know, to make larger kind of groups, particularly, you know, if you are in a small family group yourself or it's relatively restricted, and particularly if your kid has an anxious temperament, and that's kind of obvious. One of the uh, things I will never forget from taking my kids to a playground was seeing a woman, we went to a, a, a playground with a big park, a big bushy park near it, and this kid was wandering off from the playground to play in the trees, and the mother went over and said, no, 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 you don't play there. That's where you, you play in the playground. This, that's what the playground's for. And I thought that is an example of inhibiting your kid, uh, developing their own ability to assess risk and explore and and all that stuff. How have parents reacted to, uh, to your book, Daisy? Um, I think there have been kind of a few reactions. So one is this is great, this is what I'm already doing, and that's fantastic. So they kind of flick through and put it on the bookshelf and it's done. I think some uh, do find it a bit challenging and they're picking up some of them. And I haven't had many say, this is terrible, you're suggesting terrible parenting, but I do think there are some 
people and, and you know probably friends I have that just don't feel comfortable with doing those risks yet and feel like yeah you can do it later but I think what everything is showing is you want to do them as soon as possible. So Daisy can I ask can I ask about that about the pushback I, I kind of think this is really interesting because um, James and I discuss this all the time people in theory go yeah 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 okay I agree theoretically yep good but I can't do it. <laughs> you know, I just can't actually – I'm standing at the bottom of the thing. I'm going to catch them on the slippery dip. They're not climbing up that high on that thing. I'm going to preschool with them. You know, so the, that gap for modern parents, and I think I've unfortunately transitioned into the grandparent age, I stand there myself kind of thinking I'm not really sure what these parents are thinking because they're making a rod for their own back. You know, they can't yeah, do anything else. And they're really distressed about it. And I'm kind of thinking, oh, you know, like um, – I don't want to say I was abandoned as a child, but I lived a more freewheeling life as a child. And I, so, you know, what do you make of it as a parent in the modern age with kids in this thing? You know, the, clearly the parental anxiety about it is considerable. The parental anxiety is considerable. There is a lot of judgment around parenting. Um, it's very important for parents to find their tribes of parents that are similar to them. And also, um, the lakes of comparison are huge. So it's not just the five or six mums that you do mother's group with or the 20 parents in the in the class group. It's the entire internet and, you know, Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook and terrible Facebook groups that say doing things is a bad idea and risks is risks are bad. Um, and the thing is we know that people choose to get their information from where they want. So, like, the best advice I was given when I went into the hospital to have Jack is a friend said, Pick one midwife who you like and connect with and only listen to her. Don't listen to the other five that are going to tell you slightly different variations. Just pick one and listen to them. And I think that that is excellent advice for when you're having a baby and you're on a lot of drugs. Uh, But I think we also can get stuck with just listening to one school of thought on parenting and not moving beyond it. And I think that there's so much evidence out there that there are different ways of doing things. And one of the things I really liked doing with the book was researching how kids were raised in different countries. So in Japan, mm. kids as young as two or three do these like walking trains to preschool. So they like hold hands and walk down main streets. And in Switzerland, they do the same thing where they're given like this high-vis necklace that they wear to walk down the street. Now, that's not going to happen in Australia. But it's interesting to wonder why not. Mm, it is. So cultural difference, I think, is a really interesting thing. I'm having um, – when parenting was sort of explored in the main dimensions, two were always raised. One was caring or undercaring, and the other was protection versus – overprotection versus underprotection. Caring really matters to the outcome. But cultural variance in protectiveness is really high. So some cultures are much more protective. Others, don't worry, they'll survive as the normative way of parenting. Interesting in one – the, what we might call the underprotective is generally associated with having more people involved. It's a more collectivist thing. Mm. So you can walk down the street in your village in Switzerland or ski down the street, whatever, if you think the whole village is basically on the side of taking care of all the kids. It isn't just your individual responsibility. So those societies that are very individualistic also, I think, put huge amount of pressure on the parents. It's your fault. And that judgmental issue you raised, Daisy, I think is really interesting. I, I think the extent to which parents are judged harshly <laughs> These days, I've been judged harshly myself in time. I'm in the old trip to the emergency department with a number of kids in various ways, and the little red sticker goes on your file. You know, not sure how this happened. Not sure how this accident happened. We're talking in a room now. Yeah. How exactly did that child fall off there? How exactly did that child split their eyebrow? Exactly that sense that we are being monitored. And I think, as you say, that I think that is amplified in the modern world about what is the perfect parenting. If you do not do all of these things, and there's some problem with your kid. You caused it through some particular mm. way or other, including 
the things you're emphasising, James, their cognitive and their emotional skills along with their physical self. So that judgmental kind of um, aspect of the world we live in seems to be one of the contributing factors <laughs> to how hard it is for parents these days. Now, Daisy, your next book's going to be called 50 Questions to Ask Your Teens. Do you have any tips on how you begin conversations about mental health with your teenage children or with any teenagers? And I'm guessing it's probably very gently and gradually. It's very gentle. Mm. It's open. It's normalising. And it's uh, what is often referred to as naive inquiry. So you take a data point, notice you're spending a lot of time in your room at the moment, you know, what's that about, you know, what, how are you feeling at the moment, um, and you kind of ask it as though you know nothing about the topic itself. Right. That's fairly easy for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I think – but I think the, the, the mental health discussion with teenagers at the moment, especially while we're all in lockdown or most of Australia is in lockdown, is – a really important one to have in the context that everyone is in the same ocean right now. And so, for example, you know, I I teach teenagers and one thing I'm always asking them is, have you guys gone for a walk today? Are you going to go for a walk after class? Or, you know, what are you going to do? They don't necessarily have the memory and the experience of knowing what they need to do to feel better. So I remember last year in lockdown talking to a student who was in year 12 and she was just having a really bad day and she was really flat. And I said, have you have you spoken to anyone on the phone? She said, no, I just text. And I said, actually, there's a difference. And I know that texting is is what you do. It's your, it's your mode of communication, but there is a difference between texting and talking on the phone. And we're saying to the girls, get a friend, go for a walk. You can walk with one other person, do that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So, Daisy, you're raising an important issue that right at the moment for teenagers, two things have been going on. We know pre-COVID that the mental health of younger teenagers and particularly younger women was deteriorating for reasons we're not entirely clear in the last five to ten years in the uh, Western world. And then we know since COVID that the rates of anxiety and depression for all teenagers have gone up. So this at the moment, the questions, I can say, I don't know if there's time to rename your book, but, you know, questions you must ask, really, Mm -hmm. at the moment. And we're relying on teachers again and others like Daisy in the classroom who are seeing this every day. Parents don't often think that they're important, but they are really important. In fact, I think I read the title of Daisy's book and tried it on my 16-year-old. You know, he said, what? You're asking me a question? (laughs) You're not giving me a direction? Huh? What? You know, know, but in genuine inquiry, I'm genuinely interested as to what it is. So just to become Daisy's point, I know it's not okay at the moment, but I'm really interested in what teenagers make of that at the moment. Mm. And Daisy's point also, we also know other stuff that does help, things we need to do each day. We've got a better idea about what works for us, you know, and that sort of that genuine inquiry, genuine conversations about that, really important at the moment. But do you have any specific tips about opening it up? In this, I mean, I know you've given a couple, Daisy, but in the sense that – yeah, in primary school, often kids are very happy to tell you about what happens. It often closes down a fair bit in uh, high school, and you ask, you ask, you think you ask, interested question from interested parent, and they hear, you know, another inquiry that I don't really want to answer. And what do they know about my world, and why should I tell them? It was fine, all good, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> so nothing. So much. the first thing is so when, but sorry, when you get into mental health, which is even more personal and more delicate and more why should I tell these old people this how do you get there I think 
Firstly, it's very hard to talk to a teenager about mental health if this is the first time you've asked them an actual question in 10 years. So yeah. it, it needs to be built on a relationship. And we know that relationships are at the heart of um, mental health and we know that relationships and positive relationships, not just romantic ones, are one of the biggest factors in life satisfaction. So the first question you're going to ask your kid if you're asking them about their mental health is not how's your mental health going. You know, it's going to – these conversations build up over time. And, yes, there's more pressure on it now, but it could be, you know, how are you finding online learning? Or how are your friends going with online learning? It could be, um, you know, there was some really bad news today. Lockdown's been extended by a month. You know, let's go for a walk. Let's talk about how you're feeling. This might be affecting you if you're in year 12 or year 11, what, whatever year group your kid is in. Um, so I think that's – it's about the relationship, not necessarily the question. Things to think about. Don't walk into their room and talk about respect because their room, even if they share it, should be a private space. Um don't do it when you're stressed. Uh, also do it when there is a finite amount of time because if they're going to start a rant, you want to have a, a, a finite time. So if you're folding up laundry, you say, yeah, we can talk about why Susie sucks for like 15 minutes while I do this, but then we're going to go do something else. And there's always that rule, although limited because of 5K radiuses, if you have a kid who's learning to drive, sitting in a car is like the perfect time to have a discussion. It's also the perfect time for couples to have arguments. I'm not quite sure when that pivots from being great conversations to excellent arguments, but um, but cars where you're not facing each other, walking, that yeah. kind of thing. It's a great place for two men to talk too about, you know, feelings and that when they don't have to look at each other and yeah. see, the, see the fear in each other's eyes. Uh, Ian, any specific tips you'd like to add to that? Yeah, one in the moment. I, I think parents are often afraid to share their own feelings about the particular situation. This is actually a great situation to say, look, actually, this is a really difficult time for all of us. You know, we're struggling and stuff as well. So in my world, in my professional world and wherever else, people are talking about these kind of things in particular ways. So what's happening with your friends and your school friends? Like, how are you dealing with the kind of situation? Like, I really don't know how they are actually dealing with it. But I do know that we're not dealing with it that well and we're trying to work it out. And we're supposed to know what to do. Like, we're supposed to be on top of this sort of stuff, you know. Like, and we're struggling. And so in the spirit of genuine and kind of inquiry and genuine kind of engagement. Now, if you get any kind of answer that matters, all right, anything, now you share big professional secret. This is our big, big thing in specialist psychiatry. Could you tell me some more about that? You know, actually, and whether actually really, and then if whatever works for you, in an interested, engaged kind of way, like I am really interested, just, and at Daisy's point, with a bit of time. So often in those settings, uh, you know, walking is a great example, doing other things. You're not really sitting down for this massive one-to-one. This ain't a massive therapy session with the other, you know, professional. Yeah. It's like, you know, so there's a tense of we're in the boat together. And actually, you know, we're going to actually, like, we need to find out. These are Tough times. So in a, in a weird sort of way, James, the normalisation of things being tough at the moment makes it easier to suddenly be talking about yeah, right. tough things. So I think one of the gains again is parental anxiety. Parents are terrified. If they mention that you might be upset, that you might be feeling bad, they're terrified that people might say something like, I've thought about life's not worth living or something. Parents are terrified to actually have discussions. All the work we do with young people is they're having these discussions all the time. These are the things they're sharing with each other and they're not sure that they shouldn't, somewhat afraid at times of upsetting their parents by actually telling them what's going on Mm. amongst each other. And the danger of that is 14-year-olds end up giving 14-year-olds advice about what to do, about self-harm, about feeling terrible, about anxiety and depression, which may not be the best way. So I really like the fact that Daisy's book, next book, is really encouraging 
those actual questions to ask, you know, to be inquisitive. I mean, and I think from a parental point of view, you're going to learn stuff. <laughs> it may well be. All the time. It may well educated. be. The next year you can walk into your kid's room holding Daisy's new book, open at page 46. Uh, hello. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Now, Daisy, you work as uh, Director of Wellbeing, as I mentioned, at a girls' high school in Sydney, St Catharines. What have you noticed about how students are coping, have coped during COVID, and what do we need to change to take better care of high school students, both in the short term with COVID and in the long term with everything? Yeah. Um Look, it's really hard for the students and, and schools are working really hard to foster good relationships, connect with them as much as possible. Obviously, senior school in some ways is easier because most of the girls and most of the students are on Zoom each day, so they're seeing their teachers each day. But there are also negative impacts to being on Zoom all day, as we can all attest to. Um Again, we're very focused on year 12 and last year we were very focused on year 12. This is a far worse time to have a lockdown for year 12 than last year was in April. Obviously, Victoria is a different um, kettle of fish, but we're right in the middle of their trial exams. So, you know, lots of schools were discussing, should we cancel trial exams? Should we do them open book? How should we do them? At St. Catharines, we've kept the trial on trial exams happening. They're online. And my argument for that was the HSC is designed where students work up to the trials and then they have like a moment of, of, of relief and then they kind of get back into it for the final exams. You want those trials to be as real exams as possible. It would be like running the city to surf, expecting a water break halfway up Heartbreak Hill and finding out there isn't one and then it now goes to Maroubra, not Bondi. Um, so, you know, I think keeping that rhythm to their lives has been important. But I know students are – uh, I know, you know, students from K to 11 as well, we're, we've got to look at the impact this is going to have on them and we've got to have that long-term discussion. And Ian and I have spoken about this. I don't think there – I pray there is like a health policy wonk sitting in New South Wales Health trying to figure out what is this going to mean for the next 10 years. I don't know if there is. I don't think they have the capacity for it and um, and I worry about that. But I do hope to what we were just talking about, I hope that students are all developing some form of toolkit for how to deal with situations like this or stressful situations. But, yeah, it's it's a mess. But yeah. the best thing is their relationships. Yeah, Ian? Yeah, it is tough times. And I think uh, Daisy's point, I don't think to date we've had enough uh, focus on the longer-term impacts of all of this. There's been the crisis and the health crisis, and of course, the physical yeah. health things dominate a lot of things. And unfortunately, the social disconnection required to contain the spread of the virus runs contrary to the mental health and all the socialisation experiences we've just been discussing from early childhood care right through to the, and forget the K-12 bit, onto the university years or mm. post-school education sort of bits. These are critical experiences, why we go to school. I've got to say, we are very fortunate, however, to have teachers. I just want to say something else about teachers, who should have, from my body, been at the front of the vaccination queue along yep. with kids. Um, but that's another. That's for another time. Because one thing I think that parents struggle with is how experienced teachers actually are. So a very experienced teacher in, a, in another high school made the comment to me recently, uh, let's just say she was about my age, she reckoned she'd seen about 15,000 teenage girls develop. Wow. And your average parent has seen one or two, their own, plus their own experience, maybe in yeah. the system, maybe four. And the parents can say some really important things about your kid and where they fit in and the experiences that they're having. And parents these days are a little reluctant to hear all that. Uh, and that actually what kids often find is really good par uh, 
mentoring and role models in teachers in schools, like the temperamental kind of mix. I think what we have seen through the COVID is greater respect for teachers, just the, just the sheer reality of what they provide, but also the experience that they have. So working with teachers and with education on the mental health outcomes is now a critical thing. We have had historically very poor relationships between the health system and the education system. I think there is increasing recognition that the primary social environment in which kids develop their emotional and cognitive resources outside of their family is their school. And yeah. we've got to support schools to have to see those a priority. So not just their physical playground and the state of their science labs and what a physical infrastructure they've got, but do they have the cognitive and emotional infrastructure to make these the best environments for kids to develop that mental health toolkit that Daisy was just talking about. And an example of that, I know at least three or four cases where teachers um, in kindergarten and first and second year have said to parents, you know, I think your kid has an issue with anxiety. And the parents have gone, oh, thank you. And they've thought, hang on, we've spent seven years with that kid. And that teacher has spent about four weeks with that kid in a room with 24 other kids. How did they get it before we got it? But they did. They're really good at it. Um, Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to speak with you and hear your thoughts. Daisy's book is called 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids. There'll be another one soon about tricky questions to ask your teenagers. Um, If you've got any questions or comments or would like to suggest further topics we should investigate and discuss, um, send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's the number two, mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. And Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them or call Lifeline on 13 Talk to you next time.